Hello bookworms and welcome back to another episode of Bookmarks and Booze. Some trigger warnings for this week's episode, we are going to be discussing themes of rape, sexual assault, child abuse and there are mentions of suicide. If this week isn't for you then we look forward to seeing you next week. Sorry if you hear some banging, it's I'm sitting at my childhood desk and it was designed for a PC from back in the Stone Age and so <laughs> it's still got all of like the drawers and stuff for like a keyboard and so I keep just smashing my fucking nearly 30 year old legs on my old childhood <laughs> desk like crammed in here. You also have the longest gazelle legs known to man. So. Oh, thanks. Oh, you're welcome, Han. I've still got my beautiful pink jacuzzi bath to come home to. So. <laughs> I can't believe you found that from the deep recesses of hell. Like I don't even know. How you're, dare you're taking you. out a, a like lovely Victorian star bathroom that was yeah. fairly new to put yeah, in like st- the st- oh my god. <laughs> Look, man, I <laughs> do you know how many people have shouted at me so far? Like literally I have had people that I barely know online be like, shame. <laughs> I always think that with you, like you make it all pull together amazing. But if you look, yeah, I mean, obviously looking at it individually, it's a pink jacuzzi bath. Yeah, it's, I it's very much. I see what everyone else is seeing. I think that's fucking wicked. It's massive. It's got jets. It's got gold fixings. Hello. It's powder pink. It's a giant fucking jacuzzi bath. That's wicked. What's wrong with people? <laughs> like, <laughs> when you say it like that, I mean, yeah. <laughs> great. I'm going to be in there with my bubbles and my wine. I'm going to be looking at my view and my titties out. I can't wait. You know what's even funnier though is at some point when he's by himself, Chris is going to be in there. He's well excited. He can't usually lay down in a bath, and this one he almost can. He's well happy <laughs> with the pink and the gold fixings. No, Amazing. I think I've been talking about wanting a pink bathroom suite for so long. He knows that this is it was going to happen. Like I just kind of warned in the morning of like, look, there's an eBay auction this evening. <laughs> <laughs> Mentally prepare yourself. Hello bookworms, welcome to Bookmarks and Booze, where we believe if you're going to slag off a book, do it accurately. Join us each week as three close friends make our way through controversial books and their most brutal reviews. Please note, gentle listener, that we'll be giving you our totally honest opinions with drinks in hand, and this podcast will contain swearing and spoilers. Today, we are reviewing the bombshell article published in The New Yorker in July 2021, the German experiment that placed foster children with paedophiles by Rachel Aviv. So this was first reported in 2016 by the University of Göttingen. The piece follows one of the victims of renowned psychologist Helmut Kentler's state-sponsored experiment, which involved placing vulnerable and emotionally traumatised youth in foster homes run by known paedophiles. The experiment would come to be known as Kentler's Project and spanned from the 1970s right through to the early 2000s and was authorised and financed throughout by the Berlin State Senate. I'm excited to talk about this because I read this article a long while before we decided to put this on the podcast because a friend of mine from Australia shared it on Instagram and was sort of mind blown about it. And yeah, you read the title. I mean, it's a very grabbing title. And I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't quite believe it when I first saw it. But obviously, as you guys know now, it's very, very much true. And it, it's all on record, public record, and goes into a lot of detail. So what did you guys think after you'd read the article? What was your initial impression? My initial impression was also, what the fuck? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it seems absolutely insane that this was ever a thing. Uh, I kind of got to thinking about why this 
became a thing. And the closest idea that I came up with that sort of made sense was that this was obviously post World War Two. Mm. And it seems that perhaps the government at the time were trying to distance themselves so far away from the Nazi movement that they were trying to kind of encompass an idea of complete acceptance of all people, which is obviously the antithesis to the Nazi regime. And it just went way too fucking far and resulted in this completely batshit crazy program. What do you think, Emma? Yeah, I think the same. I think the big question is how did it happen? for me Mm. and it can be broken down into two kind of the larger picture and the smaller picture so the smaller picture was how did this foster father Henkel manage to keep these kids in this paedophilic relationship how was Kenler able to do this to Marco who's the the main narrator who's one of the victims so Henkel's his 47 year old paedophile foster father and the main narrator Marco is placed with him as part of Kenler's project And that small microcosmic environment and the dynamics of the foster home. And then more widely, as you were saying, Sid, the kind of feeling at the time in Germany. And it's always fascinating to me that Auschwitz and the the whole Nazi regime is such an enormous thing. But then there's like ripples that continue on and on and on right into the 2000s from all those years ago that are still so heavily influenced by this massively traumatic event. So the fact that people had, after the Nazi regime, had gone to hyper-sensitive about sexuality and very oppressive about sexuality, almost to self-cleanse and self-punish. And then it swings the other way in the 1970s when people start to think, right, okay, we've had this extreme Nazi self-punishment, not allowed sex and very, very oppressed. And now we're just going to let everyone be sexually free, but not being able to distinguish morally between what is sexually right and what is sexually wrong. And just letting all the cat, like everything out of the bag, like, right, okay, um, homosexuality is on the same level as paedophilia. Let's just make it all, you know, if, if, if guys are allowed to fuck other guys, then surely that means that children, you know, that's a gray area. And yeah, it's, it was fascinating because it gave you all the background of how it could have happened. And you're suddenly like, oh, I see, right. That's well, it's yeah. also entirely missing the point of why homosexuality is fine. Yeah, you know, to to lump it in with mm. paedophilia is is almost proving the point that you're still not really okay with the homosexuality. If that makes sense, because yeah, yeah. It, it's still an abhorrent sexuality if you talk about it in those senses, where obviously it's not. And it totally misses the point of any consent whatsoever as well. They're placing, like you say, you know, vulnerable people, vulnerable children (laughs) from vulnerable situations into these environments. And not just one child, multiple children from different backgrounds into one household where they know that this person is a paedophile. And I think the other thing for me, which really it raised an issue that's super close to my heart, which is the fact that legality and morality are two extremely different things. I always say this to people that say, oh, well, you know, it's legal and this. And I'm like, well, yeah, but Auschwitz was legal and this was legal. But that doesn't mean it was right. And I think the thing that was so tragic about this for me and like you said, we start with Marco, who was he was the one that sort of flagged himself as being a part of this experiment that he discovered literally through reading a paper and then had a connection to quote unquote brother who was an, another foster child in the same household as him and that neither of them were able to connect on any kind of emotional level at all. So there was also this element to the article of 
the psychological impact, which was obviously the whole point of the experiment, theoretically, that was Mm. very sad. You know, I I can't even call it interesting as much as it was. It is just really sad to read. Well, I think when you try and explain this to someone, it seems so far out of what we could be acceptable. I mean, I, I mm. mentioned to my partner, he said, oh, what are you doing the, the podcast on tonight? And I said, this program by which young foster boys were placed with known paedophiles. And he went, well, how did they get away with that? I said, there was no getting away with it. It was all, no one was hiding. It was funded. Mm. It was funded yeah. by the state, as Emma said. Mm. And I think what was interesting to me as well and I don't know if you both agree with this, but it seemed to me that the way that they did get away with it was through the reputation of the psychiatrist who led the study. Yeah, um, absolutely. He was like the big dick in town, wasn't he? Like he was. Published psychologist at the forefront of this changing vista surrounding sexual attitudes. Every single time they talk about Henkel, mm-hmm. who is the foster father, you know, he'd already fostered eight children before Marco came on the scene. Teachers had identified that he was always looking for contact with boys. He, A caseworker had identified he was in a homosexual relationship with one of the young boys. And yet he still, every single time someone doubted him or there was a caseworker or something, Kentner was always there to save the day right down to when the bit that just made my skin crawl when Marco finally gets the knife and hides it under his pillow one night and Henkel tries to come in and sexually assault him again and he gets the knife out and so Henkel rings Kentler it's the first person he rings who the psychologist of the experiment and says to him what can you do and gives the phone to Marco and he says why are you hiding the knife Marco and he's like oh because there's devils in the walls and he's like there's no such thing as devils you don't have to worry this man's your father you don't have to worry and he's a renowned psychologist who's just gaslighting children like it's so horrendous well it's interesting isn't it because the i actually have been calling him kruger um (laughs) because i can't remember people's names and in the terrible remake of nightmare on elm street they turned him into a child molester but it's probably in bad taste so um (laughs) his whole kind of ethos was that his father was a nazi And his father followed a school of raising children by which you were incredibly strict with them. You didn't show them any affection or any softness. He speaks about how he desperately wanted his father to just hold his hand on a walk and he never would. He never had any kind of softness or physical touch from his father and how he felt that that negatively affected him growing up and how his sexuality was always something that he was incredibly ashamed of because it had been literally or metaphorically beaten into him that that was something to be ashamed of. Hmm. And so... This was the sort of basis for his thoughts that, let's say, an intimate relationship, I think I'm, I might be using his terminology there, with a child is not necessarily a bad thing because it teaches them that they are loved and they are treasured. And I mean, it's it's complete fucking bollocks, obviously. But it's interesting that it's born of this seed of him having absolutely no affection from his father especially and also from his guilt about his homosexuality and how he I don't know whether he's truly convinced himself of this or whether it's a good sales pitch but he thinks he's doing these children a favor it seems like that was the theme for me also with this and they were essentially trying to sort of slot people together into these family structures whatever the scenario and they kind of looked at these children that were from refugee families or they were homeless or they were prostitutes or they were whatever and they sort of said oh well it's better that they have a home 
even if it's with a pedophile. (laughs) And this is how much or how little, to be blunt, that we value people in this spectrum of society. I think it's easy for us to sort of point fingers at Germany. I do actually think that it can't be underestimated going from viewing sub levels of society in such an abhorrent way to then just trying to go back to normal you know there was still that residue of how they viewed children from that area of society yeah definitely there's definitely the racist and sexist undertones of all of the most vulnerable in society and these people that are seen as other and it doesn't really matter what happens to them we're doing them a favor just by giving them a roof over their head all of them were like from foreign countries like Syria, Afghan, all of these different cultures coming in and and those are the kids that are left. The other bit I found so interesting about Kentler was when he describes seeing his dad on the phone who's been this like real authoritarian his whole life and as it said is beating him and all sorts when he was a child he sees his father on the phone being called up to war and he sees him crumble when he can't say no and he said he he sat down and his dressing gown lifted up and I saw his soft legs and I saw he was vulnerable and it made me think so much of that is to have like that powerhouse figure in your life just suddenly looks scared and frightened and needs to be loved and seeing parallels with yourself. His whole life is trying to justify and shelter these paedophiles of these soft, vulnerable children. Like it just really jarred me when I heard it. I was like, oh my God, you're like, this is, you're literally spelling it out in all of your writings and works. You're spelling out exactly who you are and everyone is just letting it happen. It's so strange. Well, I also found it interesting when they describe why he was taken away from his family in the first place because his mother was a sausage seller. Mm. And he... This is Marco. Yes, Marco, sorry. And he nearly was hit by a car when he was five, when he was crossing the road. He wasn't hit by the car, but he was nearly really badly hurt. And the government sort of went, okay, well, let's just take this child out of this situation rather than working with the parents in any meaningful capacity. Yes, Or they just went, hmm, this kid's clothes are kind of dirty. I reckon he'd probably be better off with a paedophile. Yeah. That's literally what happened. And some of these, like I said, these kids were already prostitute and that was how the grant and the whole experiment quote unquote started was there was this one particular child who was a a renowned child prostitute at the time and they essentially sort of gave them the option and because the child chose that option they used that as an excuse to start the project but it's like well okay you have a kid living under a bridge prostituting themselves to this person already And if they then get the option to actually have a roof over their head, why would you then say that that's a success? (laughs) Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I found Kruger's real name, please. Crinkler? Kentler. Kentler. Kruger. Uh, Crinkler, though. And also Freddie. Well, yeah, I keep thinking of Freddie. Um, Kentler. Kentler. Kentler, Kentler, What are you drinking? Nothing. That's the, I've just, my brain doesn't hold on to names. It discards them and they're usually very important. Anyway, Kentler, the way by which he describes this, I don't love using the word child prostitute, but I I would say abused child that was kind of resorting to sex work. That's a lot longer. Um, The way that he describes this kid is he says, um, oh, you know, he was very good looking and he enjoyed sex, so he was perfect for it. And it really reminded me of the way that Lolita is described in the novel. He was 12. We're not supposed to like the protagonist. 
but he describes this 12-year-old child as a nymphette and knowing exactly what she's doing and using her body to benefit herself and kind of like uh, using her sexuality to lure older men and how not every child is a nymphette but Lolita is and so she's sort of a special case and it's very similar to the way that he describes this child as kind of knowing exactly what he's doing and he's good looking and he's sexy and it's like no man he's hungry. I think that's typical of anyone that desires something. You provide agency and story to a scenario to suit yourself. Having had a, not not a similar situation, but having been in relationships with older men my whole life, I can attest that people will give you as much agency as they require you to have. Yeah, and it's interesting at the end, Kentler's son one of his sons who he's been in this long-term fulfilling relationship with, and he's alluded to lots of times in writings with people that he was in this long relationship with him, and it was very happy and mutually consenting and all of that. He then hangs himself. Kentler then, years later, tries to sort of backtrack a little bit on the work he's previously done, and he kind of accepts the fact that maybe having sex with vulnerable children isn't But that he doesn't even, though. Yeah, but that's the thing, he, he doesn't fully, he does like these mental gymnastics to justify why it's not his fault. So he says, oh, children subordinate themselves and they can't express their needs properly. So it's not right to do that. Oh, but it's also his mother's fault. It's his mother's fault. It wasn't me. And he does nothing to help the children that are still in foster care that he put there that are with paedophiles, even though he admits that it's not, it's a dangerous scenario. He's just just like, oh, well, oh, well. So I'd love to go back, Emma, to, you know, you were saying about where he saw his father in, yeah, his bare soft legs or whatever. The absolute immediately after that admission of like that put this different coating on it for me. He also then goes to say that that's where he loses all complete respect for his father. And so it's like also by seeing any vulnerability in a person at all, when you look at his psychological profile, despite the fact that, yeah, and again, that's another matter that in this day and age, if you want to be a therapist or a psychiatrist of any kind, you are absolutely obliged to go through it yourself. In those days, that wasn't the case. So the fact that he's then got such a questionable upbringing and has such questionable reactions when you would look at that today that would be an almost borderline sociopathic reaction of of not having empathy but having disgust for anyone showing vulnerability to go through all those years of having set up these relationships with people like way more than even recorded he informally kept the experiment going way further and past any of the knowledge that the, the Berlin State Senate had but the the fact that all of that time he did not once think or it didn't seem to correlate that maybe it was paedophilia and, and homosexuality aren't hand in hand and that there's kind of this extra massive thing called consent. It's just very obvious. The fact that, as you say, it's so sociopathic to have not even considered that it might be wrong. It is just bizarre to me that someone could be that renowned and and be in psychology and not have thought once maybe this could be damaging in some way and have justified it so seamlessly in his own mind without any kind of doubt or challenge. In his own way, this was a kind of power trip for him because... He had absolutely no power as a child. His his father would threaten to put him in devices to make him even sit and sleep a certain way. He had absolutely no autonomy whatsoever. And the amount of power, not only the psychologist, but also this guy that's adopting the children had is insane. The, the part that really highlighted it for me was there's a section where Marco is talking about how he got an adopted younger brother. Marcel. Marcel. And... um. 
he talks about how he was the first person that he ever really loved and how he really bonded with him and really because he had to constantly care for him because he had I mean I want to say cystic fibrosis but I think it was a like it was something like that, that. It was anyway serious. I'm just yeah it was very yeah. very serious and, and it sort of limited his lifespan quite a lot and he he really bonded with this guy and, and really kind of cared for him and stuff and then basically overnight this little boy got the flu and because of the condition he had, it meant that he couldn't breathe and he effectively died overnight. And Marco spent the whole night caring for him and, and staying there with him. And in the morning, Henkel, Henkel was the foster father. <laughs> Henkel basically said, right, OK, well, I need a replacement one. You know, this one's died overnight. And no one ever questioned it. It was yep. never chased up. I mean, it so happened. Well, why he that- took so long to call a doctor. Because that was another thing that he wouldn't call doctors purposefully because obviously he was abusing the children. Um, and well, so, but you know, why would he? He can just call up and get another kid. Like he, he pretends to really care and yeah. really kind of, oh, I'm, 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 I'm having sex with these, these children to enrich them and to show them that they're loved and they're treasured. But then when a really ill child is dying, all he has to do the next day is make a phone call, say, I'd like a new little boy, please. This one's deceased. And there will be absolutely no comeuppance. No one will do an investigation. No one will make sure that that is, in fact, how the child died. He could have said anything he wanted. The yeah. guy had absolute power. Mm. I found and- Henkel really, really interesting. The actual way he ran the home and all the little things that he did to make them compliant, like the fact that obviously he's they allude to him being angry, him not talking too much, he's very possessive over the children, but the children are kept with this vulnerability and this dependence that they can never talk or leave. And the not talking, and when, when he's sitting at the table and he's just like, who are you people, Marco? Um, it's so that they never discuss it between themselves. So the sex abuse is completely taboo between themselves, but then also so they don't know how to bring it to the attention of other people. So he says stuff like, I accept it out of loyalty because it's all, it was all that I knew. And then he leaves the foster home and then he doesn't know how to buy food. So he's like stealing food and he doesn't know about electricity and he doesn't leave the foster home until he's in his twenties, even though he could have left when he was 18 and he's still being sexually abused. When he goes to the first generation child, Zama, then he's like one of the first generation of Henkel fostered children. And Mm. he goes to try and talk to him, you know, years later to get information for the appeal. He's still in the same house where they would go on holiday with Henkel and be abused. And he'd taken Henkel's surname, rejected his real family. And then like all he had in the room, um, in the whole house, it was like a complete shithole and a, a hoarder house still. And then he just had one tidy area that was a shrine to Henkel with his ashes in. The guy who'd been like abused and his whole family taken away from him for years by Henkel. And he was still completely dependent on him years later and living in this like hovel house. It was just so sad, so deeply, deeply sad. He could have, he's like brainwashed them essentially. Oh, for sure. Well, this is it. What's to remember about this article? This was an experiment for this purpose to see how each individual person reacts to that upbringing effectively behind that there needs to be a level of human to human coldness Mm. to actually allow somebody to go through that and i didn't know that was the purpose of this experiment yeah it was to see how if it was something that could be a success or not that could be rolled out nationally or not so it was done in berlin but it was something that was seen to basically if it had worked that they would have 
quote unquote work. You know what? Maybe naively on my part, I assumed it was to test some kind of rehabilitation for both parties. It, it was to try and basically place vulnerable people that would have otherwise been essentially homeless with these outcasts of society as paedophiles and to see if that they could essentially solve both problems in one go. I assume no. it must be, okay, if we pair these paedophiles with these vulnerable children, will they like learn the error of their ways? Because, oh, actually, kids are just kids and I don't really want to fuck them, like, which on the surface seems no, to be... No, it, it was almost a kill two birds with one stone. It was like, well, we have these paedophiles. We don't want them to go like raping people because then that's causing problems in the policing system. And we don't want these child, again, child prostitutes, quote unquote, on the street. So we place them together. That'll, that'll solve the problem. That is so much more insidious than it's I initially so, thought because I kind of thought well. it was just, yeah, I thought it was just stupid, not mm. sadistic. It's yeah, ridi- it's ridiculous as well because Henkel is allowed to do whatever he wants. So you're not getting proper results. Like he literally is listening on every therapy session with the kids. He's not allowing them to test. He's like, oh, I'll do the tests if you need any tests. Sus, <sighs> like what? Cancelling all the parents' visits. Well, they're just treated like commodities and not people. Well, in order to foster or adopt, usually people have to go through such strenuous background checks to figure out whether or not they are suitable parents and the motives behind wanting to foster that child. So to put these kids in the hands of known sex offenders, really, the more you think about it, just makes no sense. And it's the indoctrination as well. I mean, Marco talks about he had various meetings with especially his mother but both of his parents where they were trying to get legal custody of him back and he had absorbed these ideas that Kentler was the psychiatrist had been been telling him about his parents oh Um, yeah yeah when he says and I found that interesting about Kentler as well when he would say oh your dad he's a very big brute and very macho and all this i'm like you're describing your dad what and and then marco later is like that's not actually what my dad was like and he says it it took him to reach adulthood to realize that actually his parents had wanted a relationship with him because he just sort of had this idea in his head that his parents didn't want anything to do with him and then when you look back on what actually happened he realized no they they tried really hard to have a relationship with me it was also i thought really heartbreaking hearing about how henkel controlled them and everything and, and played these manipulation games with them and basically brainwashed them Mm. that he would actively encourage marco to do badly at school and bring him presents and gifts and games when he did badly at school so that he would be thrown out so he was thrown out of seven schools and then suddenly as you're saying with marco later on when he's an adult is like i realized that that was actually just all part of it to make sure that i never settled in a school and was comfortable enough to tell anyone about what was happening how yeah. could anyone looking at this experiment have possibly thought that that was going well so calculated know? and he called it a complete success yeah let's no bones about it this is a depressing fucking article right <laughs> <laughs> but there was a light at the end of the tunnel for me that i'd love to add in which was when you actually come to the end of the article rachel the author is sitting interviewing marco he's about to get married and he has this relationship with his sort of new fiance where he's completely unemotional like he's only cried once in his adult life and he knows that he won't be emotional on his wedding day but she's so understanding and to me the fact that he had managed to find love despite the fact that 
he had gone through all of this awfulness. That was a light at the end of the tunnel. But that wasn't due to any success within the experiment. And I, I know for a fact that had this Kentler and been around that they would have taken credit for that. And mm. there's absolutely no credit due to it whatsoever. It was just an absolute light in the darkness. When I read it, I was like, it's awful, but it was so interesting. It was really well written. I loved how it was written, little parts gradually unfolding, you know. I had an really absolute nerdgasm on the structure of the article. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, I want to write like you, Rachel Aviv. One I mean, of the things I loved that she kept nudging towards a little bit was um, when Henkel and Kentler both team together when Marco hides a knife and they confront him and he says, don't believe in devils, they're not real. When Marco says, oh, there's devils in the walls, that's why I've hidden the knife, to try and allude to the fact that Henkel's abusing him. And Kentner's like, there's no such thing as devils, go back to sleep, blah, blah, blah. Later on, when Marco is older and Henkel starts beating him because he won't submit to being sexually abused, he says, why are you doing this? And Henkel says, I'm hitting the devil inside of you. And then I was like, oh, that's interesting. Obviously, he's said devils aren't real. And then he's he obviously doesn't believe that, like he's a hypocrite. But then it happens again when he's talking about seeing, Marco's talking about going to the hospice to see Henkel when he's yes, on his deathbed. And he says he looks like he's possessed and he has this long beard like a sort of wizard. And then he thinks he's being haunted when he hears the song on the radio saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. He's like, oh, it's Henkel. He's trying to apologize to me and it really wigs him out and everything. I just like the parallels to the supernatural, this disassociative thing that Marco has. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, like it's fantasy and it's not real. And he's looking down on himself. He talks about that a lot. He just disassociates massively and can't really connect with the world and wonders whether he's still alive and all of this. It's almost like there has to be this disassociation for him to sort of continue because it's like around the time of, of death of the person that sort of abused you for so many years, you would want them to apologize. Mm. you would want them to feel guilty on their deathbed. And at that point, if someone's that far gone, is there any way of knowing that that's actually the case? Exactly. It's like you're so traumatised that you've just put the whatever you're seeing into a certain frame so that you can actually process it. Like yeah. you put it into a certain story or a certain so that you can just get through having to process seeing him there and he doesn't he can't apologize he can't see you he's just a man he's got this weird beard he looks different you can't go in like oh it's just fascinating really fascinating and like raw you know so raw for him to have to describe that and I enjoy the level of accountability of the fact that it was a product of a vastly traumatized generation Um, Because I don't think we talk about that enough. I look back at my grandparents and then my parents and how that whole generation has been impacted psychologically and the birth of PTSD and mental health and how that's progressed from then to now. And, you know, I think it's something that we're easy talking about it now. We're easy talking about it even from our parents' age to now. But I still think it's something we find really difficult to admit that there was an immediate impact after that time period. Collective trauma is something that's very interesting to me. Like, I think there'll Mm. be a lot of collective trauma after COVID, you know, not necessarily every person, but so many people will have seen, especially in countries like India, seeing like a mass death of people. That kind of collective trauma affects 
a civilization and affects you culturally and changes so much. Even in the UK, for example, drinking culture in the UK has just gone through the roof since COVID hit. This might be a bit snowflakey, but I wonder if that's a kind of degree of collective trauma for us that we're hyping up drinking and everyone wants to go out drinking and it's like a kind of self-destructive healing process for the last year where it's just been such an an upheaval of everyone's lives. Um, You are listening to Bookmarks and Booze. (laughs) 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 To be fair, I've also read a lot more during the pandemic. It's not just the boosts. Well, I mean, you both know I went mildly mad during the pandemic. I mean, that was for various other reasons also, but I definitely had a bit of a mad. Um, I think we all did, really. Yeah. And but I also do think that, yeah, like those kind of impacts that discussing now in relation to this article, countries like India, parts of South America and Africa and stuff, that will be more apparent because there's people literally sort of climbing over each other to get to vaccines and things like that. So being locked Mm. down in township areas with no sanitation and no alcohol and those types of impacts will be massive. And and the whole locked in thing, the whole mask thing, I think Mm. that's almost more impactful than the amount of deaths to be blunt in the way in which we've had to live because that's such, such a, more blanket cultural implication. The aftermath of the experiment, Marco being used as like a political tool by the new right to discredit the left and discredit the kind of acceptance of homosexuality and how it had almost come full circle where the new right who was sponsoring Marco's appeal and everything to the Berlin State Senate and tried to convince him to keep going even though they offered him all this money to to put it to bed, that they are looking to bring back the kind of society and the kind of ideologies that are the reason why Kentler was produced in the first place. They want to go back to the way his father had raised him. And it's like a full loop background. I think that the right do that a lot with the left. I think that it's easy to point at really taboo things and to use that as a instead of looking into why and trying to debate it and pull it apart and draw lines, they just put the whole thing in a box and throw it in the bin. Like, oh, okay, well, this kind of idea that all homosexual people are like deviants. Everyone I know who's a homophobe, that's always what they go for. They're like, oh, well, homosexuality. Like, like, <laughs> Everyone like I know who's a homo is a deviant, but that's not the point. Like, <laughs> <laughs> also, when we say deviant, we, we mean it in the best way possible. <laughs> yeah. It's the implication that they would want to do something dangerous that they're like threatening more than they're a deviant. I think there's something people don't like to admit if you've studied any history and you're interested in politics. It's just a fact. You go from very, very extreme left to very, very extreme right. And it doesn't actually go in a linear situation. It's very cyclical. You're an extremist in your views, regardless of what angle they come at. I agree with you. They definitely use these very extreme points of view, but we arguably do the same thing. And I think it's something that we're in danger of losing at the moment. And I'm happy to go a little bit political on here, but losing discussion, losing grey area is so dangerous. Yes. So dangerous. And that's why Kentner was allowed to go on for so long because he was unopposed. He was completely unopposed the original woman who broke the story and tried to write it as part of her thesis and then got pushed out of the university and now the university is sponsoring half of it because they've realized oh, really? it's a natural thing but even she Awful. was like completely and utterly oppressed because people were like oh you can't talk against Kentler the yeah. university phased her out 
And I was like, how could you not have any, in an academic setting like that, how could you not have anyone opposing him? Any critical thought. Yeah. This is the danger of not having everybody have their piece to say and just sort of going, okay, well, all of that was wrong. So we're going to start fresh and do something completely outlandish and just let somebody with ultimate power in that industry just run with it. I've got to say, this article took me on a ride. There was a bit where they're talking about the student culture and how there's a new wave of lefties coming up and getting listened to and and they say how they're campaigning for equal rights for gay people and I'm there like okay these sound like my people and then they say <laughs> they think that uh love between a child and an, an adult is also totally fine I'm like oh wait wait you lost me let's <laughs> go people, not people. <laughs> hold up hold up not my people <laughs> <laughs> Historically, you learn about propaganda as well. And it would be very easy for people to say like, oh, you know, there was this protest and it's about free love. So therefore it was about this, Mm. depending on who's pitching it. I'm typically pretty objective about the kind of news I read because it's all essentially propaganda. Whoever owns that newspaper has a point of view. So, So if you're in this scenario where there's one opinion allowed, then you're never, ever, ever under any circumstances with any issue going to get a good overview. Mm. That bleeds into the older generation as well. My nan's a really good example. So I think for the older generation, newspapers were sort of their main source of news. And you picked your newspaper and you picked a newspaper that more or less aligned with your political views. And that's the newspaper you read. Mm -hmm. And I always used to laugh when I'd go around our house because it would be a new thing that the Daily Mail was telling you was going to give you cancer and whatever it was she wasn't eating (laughs) that week. And then she'd promptly forget and start eating it the next week because now it's not tomatoes that give you cancer. Now it's cheese. So cheese is off the menu next week. Oh, my God, it's it's pesto. So... Pesto. What are we not eating this week, Nan? Okay, no, I'm I'm going to be eating that. Thank you. Um, and <laughs> um, again, I'm massively generalising here, but my Nan has now become obsessed with Facebook, and she can't seem to realise that not everything she reads on Facebook is real. Yeah, because you have to check your sources, and she's never had to check her sources before because she believes what the Daily Mail writes. So why shouldn't wouldn't she believe what all the pages on Facebook say and she yeah. she tells me these things that she read with such sincerity and I just think that's just not real that's not true people didn't have to check the stuff that you know what you read was gospel and also what you read was usually verified by some form of fact at least typically depending on which paper you read you know I do think that that's something that we forget and take for granted it's easy to sort of roll your eyes at the older generation and sort of go oh well you know of course not but actually had we have grown up that scenario would we be the same probably I I found it a very interesting article I think I could talk on a lot of the topics for hours particularly sort of the morality versus legality issue to me it's so obvious they're not the same and yet it's so unobvious to a a lot of people Um, yeah absolutely yeah no I think that's me I think I've said my piece. Nice girls. We nailed it. We need to earn thousands a week so that we can go to Sid's illustrious art gallery and outbid other people. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I'm going to be in the I want that ghost like stick. A, a feather bow. <laughs> I didn't know that reference. I literally... <laughs> have you not read Casino? Have you not read The Red by Tiffany Rice? Yeah, but I'm like, I'm 80% of the way through it. <gasps> 
it's it's absolutely fucking filthy i mean to be fair i've just bought the ending for you but i assumed you'd read it as the cultured woman that you are i know you assumed you assumed more of me than you deserved (laughs) but um no i've i've got where have i got to (laughs) i've given away such a weird ending to that book (laughs) is that the ending yeah it is i'm sorry but it is I'm trying to put it together. I'm at the point where she's Emma, like, back me up here. It is. I mean, to be honest, there's been so much about it that's been so fucking weird. Like, oh, I loved the weirdness of that book. I loved it, but then there was also like, I want a minotaur to do me on a rock. Oh, yeah, that, that was the hottest bit. That was that, bit. that was hot, but then there was that like, bloody rock. but then someone was like feeding out of her titties and. I was just oh, not. Yeah. I was not into that. I'm not going to lie. Like, wait, know, what is this bit? I don't remember this bit. There what? was this bit where, like, she was basically reviving him from being some like weak prisoner, and then she fed him Do you out not of her remember? tea. <laughs> he's the prisoner, and and she. It was him. awful. What? What? She. It's a famous human pain- kindness. Yeah, it's a f- it's a famous painting with the prisoner, and then someone's feeding him from her breast. Oh, I think that's quite fit. Sorry. Really? King Pervert. <laughs> Sid will be feeding the whole of bloody Belmarsh. Yeah, you bloody would. You joke, but you King joke. But I come from a legacy of wet world. nurses. My nan fed the entirety of the children's hospital. She gave birth in. Go on, Joan. Let them know it's will. Christmas time. I come from a legacy of feeders, so... <laughs> Yeah, no, I love that book. Yeah, basically at the end, uh, Malcolm and his his ghost child. (laughs) (laughs) No, good. I'm I'm about to read it. Don't, don't, seriously, like enough spoilers. (laughs) Enough spoilers with the ghost child dick or whatever. He's not a child. He's just Malcolm's child, but not his child. What? Not a child. I'm sorry, but this whole book has been too outlandish for me. Speaking of, I'm listening to this Fifty Shades of Shit and he keeps dipping his fucking tongue in her navel. <laughs> I'm not, oh, well, I've literally not started that. So that's oh, the next one. It's good. Oh, yeah. I've gone soft in my old age. I said to Chris the other day, how do you feel if I went back to camming? And he went, I wouldn't love it, but, you know, I'd support you. If that's what you want to do, I'm comfortable enough for you to do it. And after sort of five minutes of thinking, I was like, no, I can't do it. <laughs> Oh no! You know what though? You were so emotionally deceased inside. Like I just, I can't. I, can't. I, was, I was the richest I've ever been. It's the richest you've ever been so far. Mm. Yeah, let's sit with that one for a hot second. Yeah. Maybe persevere with things that I actually enjoy doing. Yeah, yeah. I keep good. trying to duck out. I keep going. Ah, find a checkpoint. Save, save. This is going to not sit well with you, but okay, I want you I'm to ready, listen to me. You Hit are me. deserving of everything that you want. Okay. Keep going. How's that? All right, say it slower. <laughs> you are. <laughs> okay. My, my ASMR voice. Yeah. You are. <laughs> <laughs> you are deserving of mm. everything that you want. Mm. Let it, Why let is it, it sexual? <laughs> <laughs> so supportive, and you're so, just. Oh yeah. Sorry, I'm ovulating. I am. <laughs> so, what are your thoughts? We want to hear from you. Leave a comment or tag us through Instagram at bookmarks and booze, or email us at bookmarks and booze at outlook.com. Thank you so much for listening, and be sure to tune in next week 
for more books, booze, and brutal book reviews.